Hello, this is Dennis, and I'm the host of Science for Societal Progress. During this season, I sometimes pick one of the 13 most popular episodes from the first two years and post the original interview. These extended editions contain a couple of parts that didn't make it into the final cut and give an insight into the underlying conversation. Supporters on Patreon have immediate access to these versions, by the way. If you are one of them, thank you very much. If not, think about it. www.patreon.com slash progress Any support is greatly appreciated. This time, we go back to episode 27, which first appeared in May 2019. Precarious Postdocs, A Future for Research? Where my guest shares his research on the situation of postdocs and graduate students. My name is Gary McDowell. I'm the executive director of a non-profit organization called Future Research, which is trying to push for changes for early career researchers and scientists and to try and help them deal with some of the issues that they're facing as they navigate their way through academia and through science. And what have been your uh, previous research experience? So, so what field are you coming from? I started off as a chemist. I did master's research in protein folding and ended up transitioning. I was always more interested in biology, uh, the bi biological aspects of chemistry. I did my PhD in oncology. It was a lot of work in developmental biology and biochemistry, looking at protein degradation. Both of those degrees were at University of Cambridge in the UK. I did my first postdoc at Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, that was in mass spectrometry, again, looking at embryo development, protein changes over time. And then my second postdoc was uh, at Tufts University in Boston. And that was looking at left-right uh, patterning during embryo development and cytoskeletal proteins involved in that. So I come from a protein chemistry background, I guess, is the major theme. Yeah. <laughs> While you were doing your postdoc, I guess, uh, was when I heard, first heard from you, mm -hmm. um, while I was in the United States myself uh, on Twitter talking <laughs> about postdoc issues. Um, so, so what happened? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You the, switched um, completely, right? So <laughs> it, it's been a, it's been an interesting but sort of, you know, when you look at the, the history of it, it, it kind of has, has followed a, a logical trajectory. So, you know, my first postdoc experience was not ideal. I was essentially competing with another lab down the road. I was having a, what a lot of people have described as a extreme but not unusual Harvard Medical School experience. <laughs> and it just wasn't fun. I just wasn't enjoying doing science in, in quite a contrast to how my PhD experience had been. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I moved to postdoc at Tufts, which was, you know, was more enjoyable. It was more collaborative atmosphere. The project was interesting. But still, through all of this, I was really experiencing the nature of the postdoc position, which was in stark contrast to a lot of issues in, in graduate school, you know, namely that there's not a lot of transparency about the postdoc position. I think a lot of people, myself included, don't realize sort of what you're getting into in comparison to graduate school, which I think has a lot more definition and 
um, is frankly a lot less isolating. So I, I became really interested in the nature of doing science, and in particular this, you know, the role of early career folks, particularly postdocs, but also graduate students, and the issues that they were facing going through the system. So around that time, a paper had come out in PNAS that was written by four very senior biomedical researchers. So Harold Varma, Shirley Tillman, Mark Kirchner, and Bruce Alberts, and they were giving their sort of um, elders of the enterprise perspective of here are the issues that we see, and we see particularly the the junior people. Um, you know, people aren't having as much fun as they were when we were postdocs. Was a was a big theme, and so there were a group of us in the Boston area who started to get together to organize a conference to essentially get the perspective of early career scientists. Uh, a little bit as a, a response to this this paper and to say, hey, here are the things that we see as the issues that we are facing and, um, you know, to try to communicate that forward. So it's called mm -hmm. the Future of Research Symposium. And and we, we had various workshops. We brought people in to get them up to speed on what was going on uh, and then had workshops discussing various issues. And we wrote up a white paper about it. And we we came to the conclusion that there were three sort of major issues facing junior folks. One was obviously funding, but another two were the lack of transparency about the system and the lack of just any information to help people make rational and informed decisions going through this, uh, the academic track about careers, and about just the nature of, of academia. And then the other component was how isolated various researchers could be both from each other, but also from people in other tiers or other career stages. So that postdocs, as, a, as the extreme example, are, tend to be quite isolated from other postdocs, but also are quite isolated from graduate students and early career folks sort of exist in a different world to a lot of senior folks, which has come up in a number of our projects, the sort of very, what, what, people think is happening and what is actually happening and and um, the, the differences in opinion between those groups. So, you know, we put out this 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 paper into the world. And I think honestly at that point we thought that that might be that might be it. You know, that might sort of draw a line under it. We hoped there would be more action and more follow-up. Mm -hmm. um, but we said it would be great if other places had meetings like this. You know, this happened in Boston. Boston I think is is a particularly intense place, um, but it's not the only place that's doing science. And it, you know, the issues in Boston may be very different to the issues, you know, anywhere else. We were very aware of that and saying, you know, although there's a great concentration of research here, there could be different issues coming up elsewhere, even that we noticed between institutions in Boston. Yeah, and so a few places around the country in the US held meetings in the following year themselves, which we helped out with. And eventually we were approached by the organization who has funded our initial grant, the Open Philanthropy Project. And they said, oh, you know, we're kind of interested in this from a perspective of the efficiency of science, because it seems like yeah. this is a real inefficiency. We were like, we agree. So, yeah, I ended up transitioning, writing a grant for them and then transitioning into this role full time out of academia wow. um, and into this nonprofit sort of academia adjacent role. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting story. So, because I hope to not only have academics here uh, listening, but also people you know interested in academia and the efficiency of science, do you have a definition? Did you make up a definition of a postdoc and what a postdoc should be? Uh, yes, I. So I have a pretty 
personally have a very decisive definition of what I think a postdoc should be. So what the postdoc is at the moment is essentially someone who is carrying out work that needs to be done for a grant in the majority of cases. This is a role that traditionally had been played by staff scientists and has been taken up by postdocs because postdocs are identified as trainees and are therefore cheaper. Whereas what I think the postdoc should actually be is someone who is conducting their own research, who is trying to set up their own research program and is doing that under the mentorship of a more senior academic or someone who has their own lab, who has some idea of how to do this, who you know has gotten a faculty position and so can pass on that, that wisdom, has grants, has students, you know, and can sort of that's been sort of the idea of the postdoc, I think, this apprenticeship model. But it's it has been distorted by this need for for cheap labor to, you know, in a hyper competitive funding environment. And so you find a lot of people are not working on their own research. They're working on someone else's research. And, you know, this this is sort of frustrating that the idea that postdocs are trainees is to me very galling because essentially they're just continuing what they were doing in grad school in many cases. and. To, to me, the, the difference between getting a PhD and doing a postdoc should be that a PhD teaches you how to be a scientist, but a postdoc should teach you how to be an academic and how to be a how to lead a research group. And so that should include how to manage people, how to manage finances, how to, you know, a lot of these much more professional development kind of things are very important here. But essentially, most postdocs are doing benchmark uh, or doing the, the sort of lab work that needs to be done for the person who has who has gotten the grant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I personally agree with that assessment um, or, or with that um, definition of a postdoc because I, I always felt like that's the selling point, right? Mm -hmm. they, they are selling the postdoc as a trainee experience uh, mm -hmm. so they can, you know, they, <laughs> they pay you less than you would get with a comparable degree or with that degree in a comparable... Mm -hmm. um, industry for example you would earn much more money so they give you less and the idea is as you said to get mentorship and maybe leadership uh training even uh, and things like that but that's often not happening i feel um but that's just my feeling you did actual research on that um <laughs> so how, how did that work and uh what were the outcomes yeah, so a lot of the research we have done, um, part of it has been trying to bring together other parts of research that people have been working on or other pieces of data that ex exist and try and bring them together and to help build up a picture. And then part of it is doing our own research. So one thing that we particularly have focused on been salaries for postdocs. Um, and the reason we ended up focusing on this was as the nonprofit was formed. It coincided with a change in labor law in the U.S. that was not that the focus was not uh, on postdocs, but it, it was having the effect of raising salaries for postdocs at U.S. institutions by affecting overtime requirements and wages generally. And there was a significant push to try and ensure that postdocs were were included in the bill once once people realized that they were they were uh, a part of this 
Uh, and then there was also a push, obviously, by a lot of higher education institutions to remove postdocs or to lower the salary that was being proposed, realizing that this was going to be a big cost for universities. So we sort of looked at what universities were doing and how they were implementing this. And it was an interesting thing to look at because we already knew most universities couldn't count the number of postdocs that they actually have currently accurately. Yeah, I remember um, that. That's yeah. how. I mean, they pay them. They, they need to yes. know how many there are, right? But they don't. Right. There are these various different titles, you know, like dozens of different titles that postdocs can come under at institutions basically to do with how they're administered and where money is flowing from and to and how they're paid and who's paying them. And so it, it leads to this very surprising situation where people don't actually know how many trainees they are training, which is obviously not just a problem for your current situation, but also when people leave, we don't know where they go. Um, mm -hmm. To the extent we don't know what country people go in, uh, go into after training in the US. And we yeah. know that roughly two thirds of them are foreign born. But again, we don't we don't have a great grasp on where people are coming from and where they're going to because of this extremely poor data collection effort uh, that there mm -hmm. has been. So we were using that as, as an example to say, this is why you should count postdocs because now a lot of universities were scrambling to figure out who their postdocs were to make sure that they were going to comply with the labor law. One weird part of the story was that the labor law update never actually came into place for various political reasons and, and uh, legal reasons. And so, um, there, there was no longer a mandate for universities to raise salaries. But this, this change happened 10 days before the mandate was due to come in. And so then there was this interesting thing of, oh, are universities going to cancel the raises or are they going to keep going? And most of them had already budgeted, already committed, and frankly already knew that this was the, the moral answer was that they should raise the salaries and just yeah. commit. And places like the National Institutes of Health had said, we're still going to commit to this raise because, again, we've budgeted for it. And you know, we know it's the right thing that we should have done this before and it's the right thing to do. And then there were some places who did try at the last minute to cut their salaries. And so then we, we as an organization who'd been ga gathering the information, people started to come to us and say, hey, my institution just sent me this email saying you're not getting your raise next week. Or even in some cases, they got the raise and the institution was going to, they'd already cut the paycheck, but they were going to take it back out of the next paycheck. All of these crazy things started to appear. So we decided that we should gather the actual salary amounts on the day that the change was supposed to come into effect at all of the institutions that we could in the US. So we used freedom of information request mechanisms at uh, major public universities with, mm -hmm. with big postdoc populations. And um, basically just asked, for the title and for the salary of the postdoc. And this first of all gave us a, a bunch of data on the actual salaries of postdocs, which was the first time that really there'd been a, a comprehensive data collection effort on that front. But it also highlighted the standard of the data because a lot of places, again, because they couldn't find who their postdocs were, essentially gave you know, very small data sets also in the way that they were paying people. We would get salaries of zero because the institution was saying, well, we're not technically paying them because they're getting paid by some other agency directly. And so mm. and so we, we got this like very confusing picture of, of salaries, but also generally we got a sense of what the average salaries were and median salaries were across the country. And we were able to, you know, make some um, some interesting assessments based on that, which we then published as a paper. And we've continued that work. We've we've done we're going through now the data we've got for the two years following that because we can start to look at longitudinal data, 
we've asked for names, we can actually start tracking people. Yeah, so it's it's been an interesting project so far. And that that has been a, you know, with the goal of trying to make the postdoc a more transparent thing, uh, a more well-known thing. And it's also had the great effect, of course, that some of the places who cancelled their salary raises were effectively shamed into reversing that decision again when they realised that they were in the extreme minority. So, and, and this focus has... I've been personally really interested in this because most of the issues I think that we face uh, in academia are to do with the cheapening of labour and focusing on saving money through making people cheaper rather than on making sure that we're doing good science and prioritising that over the, you know, obviously the cost is going to be important, but I think we're too focused on, on the cost of things. And also in academia, you're told that if you even think about money, you don't deserve to be in academia, right? Like you, you should just yeah. be there for, the, for, you know, because you have the passion and, you know, to think about money is to, is to not be deserving. And that to me is a really gross selection factor in science. You know, it has nothing to do with scientific ability or curiosity. It's purely, can you afford to stay in this system? Um, right. And as, you know, as postdocs are longer and people are getting older, older and older, you know, the people you see leaving are the ones who want to have kids or who, you know, come from less wealthy backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just it's just not the way we should be selecting scientists through through how we pay them. So so it's, I've, I really enjoyed talking about money because we're not supposed to. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and, I, and yeah. I think a lot of graduate students and postdocs are now thinking and talking about money in a way that they weren't before. So that's been very rewarding. Yeah, I think that's a good thing that people start thinking about it so talking about money what are the actual numbers i mean how yeah. do uh, postdoc salaries compare to industry salaries of uh, yeah. comparable um experience um what what was so maybe we should also explain the labor law sure yeah it's um it's the fair labor standards act which came into the us uh, i think in the 30s And this was an update that was proposed by uh, President Obama and his labor secretary, who was uh, Tom Perez at the time. And so the change they were proposing was to increase the salary threshold at which you would be paid over time, which at the time was $23,660. For, Just for, for comparison, what, what is the average yeah. uh, income? Average income in the US, I think is somewhere in the $40,000 range. I would have to double check that, but I, I think it's somewhere in the 40s. Yeah. Um, and so, this labor law is for specific groups, right? And postdocs were part of one of the groups where they would say, once we pay you $32,000, you have no right to ask for overtime pay. Right. That's, so that's basically... Yeah, so it, it applied extremely broadly, which was why it was quite a major deal in the US across a lot of different um, a lot of different employees in different mm -hmm. sectors. But there were various sort of subcategories that people were in. Um, and one interesting part about the postdoc issue was that people were trying to move institutions who didn't want to raise salaries were attempting to have postdocs moved based on the fact that they were quote unquote trainees. Uh, moved into a group a lot like medical residents, um, people who are, you know, are post-medical school but are doing their medical training. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, these people are trainees in very much the same way as, as medical doctors. You know, they're post their doctorate. They're, they're in this training position. 
And what was interesting was the Department of Labor in the U.S. essentially didn't buy it. Um, <laughs> thanks in part to uh, a group of unions who represent postdocs going along and explaining, hey, here's the reality of the postdoc. It's not really a training position. They don't get, there's no credentials at the end. Nobody's really measuring whether they're getting trained in stark contrast to the medical residency, right? It, which is of a defined period and has very clear training outcomes and requirements. Um, and they said, this is essentially just a, you know, a bench position. And the Department of Labor was like, yep, that seems, that seems correct. And so it's sort of, the university sort of failed on, on that front. And then the other tack, of course, was, th so the, the salary before the, 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 the threshold was 23,660. What uh, the Obama administration was proposing was 47,476. And they were making the argument that it hasn't been updated in about 15 years. We also want it to be updated every three years, tied with inflation, you know, these various markers mm -hmm. to keep it up to date because they said it needs an overhaul. It's clearly been a long time. Obviously, this was a big leap. Again, the average salary being in the 40,000s, it was a logical leap, but for a yeah. lot of businesses and for a lot of places, of course, they... They reacted to it badly because it was a very large increase all at right. once. Yeah. Um, and that was where a lot of the fight against it came through. But, but higher education became a surprising ally of those who were trying to fight against the update. Um, hmm. You know, obviously business was against it broadly, but a lot of lawmakers really seized on the fact that universities were against it. And it wasn't just affecting postdocs, of course, it was affecting administrators, people who work in graduate admissions offices, you, mm -hmm. basically people all across the university were mm -hmm. under this, not, and not just postdocs. And so it was really going to be very expensive for, for universities. So, mm -hmm. yeah, but the postdoc issue became a, a key part of it. So yeah. that's right. Based on your research, what would you say was the median or mean uh, mm. income for postdocs before and after? Mm. So we didn't have a, we didn't collect the data from the year before. So we just had, mm -hmm. we basically just took a snapshot of on the date that the update was supposed to come in, what was the average uh, or what was the median? And the median we found was, um, so there was this number I said, the 47476. NIH brought in a number for its fellowships starting at 47484. I think that's right. Just slightly higher. And only because it divides by 12 better. That's that's mm. the only reason. Uh, and it was that NIH number which turned out to be the median. And that made a lot of oh. sense because, I mean, first of all, we expected that the, the Fair Labor Standards Act number itself would be extremely determining. And there were definitely a lot of salaries that were, were at that. So we, we assumed that people's salaries had been raised to that number, which had emerged in the last six months, right? That, that number... Being at exactly that number indicated that they had been put at that number at that time. And the 47484 number came up because a lot of institutions just go by the NIH's guidelines as their recommendation for their salary policy. And it's interesting because the NIH salaries only technically apply to a very small subset of awards that NIH gives, fellowship awards and training awards. But it doesn't apply to researchers who are on research project grants, which is mm -hmm. most grads and postdocs. But interestingly, because, because the institution just uses this number, postdocs across the institution, and interestingly, across all fields, were actually tied to this number. So the, the policies of the institution are being set, you know, legally, a very, very tiny subset of postdocs actually has to have this number. 
mm-hmm. institutions are sort of pegging everything to what NIH is doing. So NIH, you know, a conclusion we came to is NIH is really setting the postdoc salary in the U.S. through their policy, which um, I'm not sure they were thrilled by yeah. <laughs> having that possibility. <laughs> But well, that they had that nonetheless. So, yeah. so that was a, an interesting conclusion there. And so we're now looking with the new data that we've got in, because NIH has continued to raise its minimum and is now currently uh, at around 50,000 for, for starting uh, fellows. We're looking to see whether that is tracking in institutions, whether this, the number is raising or whether mm-hmm. this was like a one-off event because of the, the legal implications of the, the Fair Labor Standards Act. Because again, right. The current minimum for postdocs, legal minimum, is still 23,660. We did find a couple of postdocs in 2016 who were at that exact number. So wow. that implies we're like, this is literally as little as I need to pay these people, which was, was pretty sad. But that number is going up. The, the long and short of the update to the, the labor law is that the Trump administration is raising the number to somewhere in the 30,000 because it realized that a lot of working, working class folks were really into this. Uh, mm-hmm. But also, they, you know, so a compromise has been made. My estimate is it, it will affect a few. It would have affected a few percent of postdocs. It may affect some postdocs, sadly, but it won't affect most people. So still quite below. I think, honestly, the, the effect of the Obama attempt was a really striking effect on, on postdoc salaries in the U.S. And, and we, I think we're, we're, we'd like to take a bit of credit for keeping that narrative going and keeping attention yeah. on this so the universities really felt that they had to to keep going so um, and then you were asking about the how these salaries relate to people who are outside of academia right so we haven't done work on that but there's a really interesting paper by can and ginther i think it was 2017 and it's about the effect of postdoctoral experiences on researchers and it focuses pretty much entirely on salaries mm-hmm. and what's really interesting is that they found um, they compared people who had come out of the PhD, compared the subset who did a postdoc with their colleagues who did not do a postdoc. And across all fields, people who did not do a postdoc were earning more than people who did, including up to 15 years past getting their PhD. Mm-hmm. I think there was, a, there was a, lot, a strong reaction from industry about this because there's an interesting you know, an interesting perspective from industry of, oh, a postdoc is really useful. I sat on a study at the National Academies where we actually asked them to like, you know, give a give a strong answer of why the postdoc was useful. And I have to say they they were not very convincing. Um, they didn't, <laughs> but, you know, a postdoc is somehow good in this in this nebulous way. It seems as much that they're just it's helping them select out people um, in a sense, and especially postdocs who might be doing something I did my postdoc in uh, frog embryo development, and I was under no illusions that I was as competitive for industry as someone working on, um, you know, tumor immunology, right? Like it's a very, what your postdoc is in, I think is also extremely important. And so they were very much pushing the narrative, oh, a postdoc really helps you. And what they showed was that if you go into industry with a postdoc, you're still earning less after 15 years than someone who presumably went in straight from a PhD. And and that really rubbed a lot of people up in industry the wrong way. So um, uh, but the, the same also holds true. It was a very small sample size, and I don't think it was included in the the, the paper itself. But it, the same was also true for tenure track positions. It was across every single profession, including academic ones. So that was has been an interesting. You know, the postdoc is sort of a holding position for the labor market in mm-hmm. biomedicine, 
And, you know, it works very well for those who get the labor. And it also works very well generally because, because nobody is counting them, because nobody is tracking where they go or what happens to them. They sort of disappear into the labor market and they're never really heard of again. And, you know, there's this thing of, oh, a, a postdoc is great, a PhD is great, you can get a job in sort of anything. But, you know, it's, it, we don't actually have real data on where people are ending up. And the, the, really the only argument I've been hearing from leaders is, well, they're not on the street unemployed, homeless, right? So well, that's they're true. doing <laughs> some kind of work. But, you know, whether that is working in Starbucks or in some sort of service job, right, or whether it's working in a job that requires a PhD or a postdoc, I think the jury is still a little light on. I, th I, think, it's, mm -hmm. I think it's relatively optimistic, but I think it's, it's not really a great argument to be making that, that your baseline is whether people are homeless and unemployed. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that should not be it. Not after all that that you went through, especially in the U.S. where you really pay a lot for your college degree. Uh -huh. And right. then uh, yeah. you might not be able to pay it off uh, during yes. your PhD or your postdoc because it's not that much money, uh, right. especially if you have a family. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah this, this whole uh, yeah. postdocs being kind of invisible and in a limbo, um, <laughs> that there's a really funny PhD comics uh, <laughs> strip to that where, you know, people, all of the sudden appear and everybody's yeah. like whoa who's that well that's a postdoc you never see them you don't know what who they are what they do <laughs> right and yeah. and it means that so much of the the experience of a postdoc you know this holds true for grad students too but so much of the experience of a postdoc is known to like a lot of postdocs themselves but is somehow mm -hmm. completely unknown to a lot of researchers and senior scientists and you know i was i think i was saying a little before this is the thing that comes up a lot is that what grads and postdocs experience is sometimes completely different to what uh, professors think is going on <laughs> um and it, you know we've just published this this preprint right about peer review of journal articles Mm -hmm. And the motivation for this study was that we, you know, my, my co-author and I, we were at this conference about peer review and a discussion of a phenomenon came up that we thought everyone knew about, which is graduate students and postdocs who will do peer review essentially of a journal article and then give their, their written work, the, the review, the report to their professor who will mm -hmm. then take it and submit it or will work on it or may do whatever but it, you sort of pass along a piece of work they ask you to review it for them essentially or right. sometimes with them um and then they'll submit it and your name isn't on it you're not known to the editor you know right. and we were sort of you know we had done this and uh somebody from the journal eLife um who have a an early career group uh, they had done a little survey and they had shown that most of the early career folks that they asked had done peer review, but that their professor had had not done any. There had to be no input from the professor. They basically just gave this thing and the professor didn't help or do anything or give them any feedback. And people, senior people in the room were really shocked. And in fact, they started to say, you know, this doesn't happen. This can't be right. There's some <laughs> mistake with your data. And that every young, to me. <laughs> yeah, right. And every young person in the room was looking at each other and going, we've all done this, yeah. you know? And it but was if, for eLife, yeah. by the way. I, it was, right. <laughs> I wrote a review for eLife. And, oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, you know, there are various reasons that people do it. So I think I had done it, you know, because a journal 
didn't allow quote unquote early career folks to peer review. So my professor just let me do the review and he he took it. But you know, he he gave me credit otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. Um and then my colleague, she had you know, her professor I think just assumed this was the way it was done. You just, you know, yeah. you work with the person, it's a training experience, and then you submit the review. But when you actually start to dig into it a little a little deeper, it's it's actually really concerning that this is going on because first of all, the confidentiality of the paper is broken. Um, and also you have people reviewing it and you don't know what their conflicts of interest are. You don't know, there are some group of people doing review that the journal editor doesn't know about. And that's really hard Mm -hmm. to, you know, control the standard of review. So of course we are sitting in this room and we had no evidence beyond this eLife survey, right? Of, you know, and people were saying, this doesn't happen. There's no evidence about this. So we were like, well, okay, we better go away and try and get some data on this. So we did this survey and we asked people about their peer review experiences. And, you know, a lot of people, I think 80, around 80% of early career folks had done co-reviewing. That is, they had worked with the invited reviewer on a review, but about 50% had what we were calling ghostwritten the review. In, this, in essence, they had done a significant amount of the work and were completely unknown to the journal. And there were lots of very concerning aspects coming up too, because the major argument for this is that it's a training experience. And we actually found that most people were just writing a thing, giving it to their professor and never getting any feedback. So it wasn't really right. a valid training because you're not even getting any feedback on whether it's good or not. So, you know, this, this, um, this, I think I really enjoyed working on this project because it's such a future research thing of here's a, here's a phenomenon that exists that is extremely well known amongst grads and postdocs. And yet somehow the scientific community is baffled. You know, it's been really interesting seeing the reaction to this study because we've had a, you know, we had a little write-up in science about it and a write-up in nature about it. And, you know, it's getting a lot of attention. And lots of grads and postdocs are saying, why is this a surprise to anyone? Why is this new? You know, which we agreed, right? I think this is why nobody had studied it before because people just assumed everyone knew this. And so, you know, this disconnect between what's actually happening and what professors think is happening or choose to believe isn't happening. I think there's a lot of willful ignorance and choosing to believe that the people are not being exploited or you know, their labor is not being exploited or they're not being put in bad positions. We hear a lot of, I don't do that and my friends certainly don't do it either, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which doesn't excuse the fact that it's clearly happening and it's happening yeah. a lot, right? So right. that it's just a, it's again, anecdotal argument. So. Um, on their side yeah. on their right right on their side so right. that's that's why we've tried to be as an organization very deliberate about getting a lot of evidence together to try and, and push for change and you know that the outcome we hope of this is not just that people are talking about it but we're now trying to figure out how to get journals to change policies so that mm-hmm. this isn't happening you know we're trying to make a push that there should be more peer review training i personally i think there should be more peer review courses and study during a PhD, I think we were surprised how little of that exists, actually, that it's not, that it's not standard at the start of a PhD or, you know, Mm -hmm. as part of an undergrad experience that you learn how to peer review a paper. Considering this is, you know, the scientific community has chosen this as the way that we present knowledge to the public and say, this is how we know what truth is, is Mm -hmm. that we do this work and then we review each other's work, right? And that, that, um, that the standard of that is not extremely, you know, is not a key part of training a scientist, I think is right. actually a little, 
a little surprising. Yeah, so we're hoping to, to push for some of those changes to try and help folks. But again, just having the conversation as a start brings to light that this is happening and we can talk about it because now there's a thing that says, you know, you can now go to your professor and say, look, this we shouldn't be doing this. This is, a lot of people are saying this is plagiarism, which it technically is. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 honestly, I think a lot of professors just do it because it's the way that they probably did it and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the way they were trained and everyone is just, every, no one's really sat down, I think, and thought about, is this the right way to be doing this uh, right. in a really systematic way? And so that's what we're trying to point out. Um, and the peer review is, I think, going to be improved by by trying to clear up this problem. So, yeah. Yeah, I have I have the feeling that a lot of the issues uh, of PhD students and postdocs as well is that there has been there have been traditions, also publication, by the way, uh, there has been an established tradition, and nobody realized how it was sliding down a hill. Yes into really bad conditions in a lot of places within academia. Um, Talking about that, so uh, my experience was that when you try to get postdocs to care about Mm -hmm. anything, Mm -hmm. uh, there was hardly any response. And my, so what I think is that they were all too busy trying to get the next publication out to even go to postdocs meetings at their own institute. So Mm -hmm. I've been at two uh, institutes. Uh, In both cases, there was hardly anybody going to these meetings. So in the the United States, I was at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. I think I remember it was about 20% of people who showed up uh, uh, here in Portugal. I went to the Champollion Foundation. Just a handful mm. of people showed up. It was so bad that we couldn't make a decision because right. not enough people showed up. Um, how is your experience with that? Because I'm pretty sure you need to talk to a lot of postdocs. Yeah. Um, how is the response rate? Do you do you find actually functioning postdoc uh, like yeah, counselors it, or things like that? It's it's really interesting and extremely variable and. You know, I think one thing that comes up a lot when we talk about, you know, with postdoc officers and people who who deal with postdocs generally is the, I always say that I find postdocs very irrational uh, and, <laughs> and, and that the psychology is fascinating. And a lot of it has to do with there are various things going on, like there are sunk cost effects, right? So you've, you've spent all this time training and you're like very committed to, to doing it. There is a way that everyone's being told that you have to have to succeed. And that is by publishing lots of papers and getting lots of data, right? And so people are extremely focused on that. I often, when I'm going around, because, you know, I talk to a lot of postdoc um, associations and organizations, and one of my favorite things to point out is I like to ask them, so how many of you are here on a visa or are foreign? You know, how many of you are not permanent residents or citizens? And, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes there's no, often there's nobody in the room. And I was like, that's two thirds of your population right there who are, and, you know, they, they are either maybe not, they don't think they should be concerned. They're just trying to serve their time. I think is a perspective that comes up. It's like, I just have to keep my head down and get on with this and I'll be okay. It, and it varies a lot by country and like whether people are looking to stay in the U.S. or looking to go to their home country or to another country. Honestly, when I was on a visa in the U.S., so I was on a, a J visa, which is the sort of basic temporary one for my first postdoc. 
And then I ended up marrying an American citizen and uh, getting a green card just as I moved a month after I moved to my second postdoc. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the safety that I felt in speaking out was it was it was literally an overnight change of that was when I started doing the work that, that led to what I'm doing now. I didn't really get involved with postdoc stuff when I was on a J visa and I was in a pretty safe position. But I think uh, when you're on a precarious position um, and certainly if you have a family that you're supporting, right, um, you you maybe just really want to keep your head down and, and not worry about it. And with certain countries, you, you do just have to serve your time in the US for a little bit and, you know, just put up with it and you will get a job. In some countries, you know, if you've spent four years at Harvard Med School as a postdoc, there are places that, that will definitely take you on. And so, so I can understand, we actually saw this in Boston when discussing postdoc salaries. There were a lot of foreign postdocs who said, if they raise salaries, there'll be fewer postdoc positions, which means fewer opportunities for people like us. And it's really hard trying to like reconcile these different things, right? And what is what should be the optimal, you know, size of the postdoc population and like where should people come from to do it is it's really these are you know tough things to be grappling with. Mm -hmm. So so that explains a lot of it. I think you also get phenomenons like a lot of us who give workshops, for example, have this thing where we'll ask how many of you told your PI that you're here today? And, you know, maybe one or two hands will go up. <laughs> Everyone's afraid to tell their boss that they're they're going to career development things or professional development things. And that's not a great situation no. also. I mean, especially because that's that's why what they sell us the postdoc for, right? To right. advance right. our career. And then we're yeah. not allowed or we think we're not allowed to go to career development uh, workshops. Right. That's and it's it's particularly a US problem, I find, compared to the UK. So, for example, in the UK, Every year I had to do 10 days worth of professional development things. And it was, the bar was very low. It was literally, did I go to a seminar? Did, did I leave the lab? That was the bar, right? Mm -hmm. And it was, it was mandated by the institution. It was mandated by the funding agency. And so, you know, the professor had to, had to let you do it. And it was a great mandate for people like me who wanted to go out. I did a, a course in pedagogy using that time, for example, but also for people who, you know, you can't force people to leave the lab sometimes, right? And so for people who didn't want to do any of that, you know, training stuff, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, they could go to a conference or they could go to a seminar and that would count, right? So it was, it was easy to do, but it provided a great mandate for, for getting training. Mm -hmm. And I was at a talk by the postdoc officer, the head of postdoc training for Imperial College London at the mm -hmm. National Postdoc Association meeting in the U.S., and she started off her talk with this, basically talking about this 10-day training mandate, uh, basically as an introduction, as an aside, not even thinking about it. And the room descended into chaos as people said, but how do you, how do you get the PIs to let people go? And she's like, they have to let them go. Like, they, they, have to, they have to let them go. And it was this fantastic cultural disconnect, because in the US, the idea that that the PI doesn't have total control of the person seems seems extremely strange. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, you see the same thing in people graduating from their PhD. It is bizarre to me that a a professor has such a say in when their person leaves because mm -hmm. of the conflict of interest. You know, yes. they have they've become their most productive and they're the best, right? That the, right. they will be. So of course you want to keep them like another year and get that right. work out, right? So and, and not that, on a postdoc salary. 
I know it would be too expensive. <laughs> right, right. Even that is too is too much. So that so there's those fascinating dynamics too. Um, and so it does make it extremely hard trying to push for change because I think one thing that we have suffered from as an organization, we don't have a membership per se, right? We don't we don't charge people to, to sign up to be members. It was one route we could have gone down and we sort of chose to avoid it because anyone can sign up to be a member for anything and it doesn't really give you a mandate for uh, people look to it as a mandate. But, you know, whether we have 5,000 postdocs or 50,000 postdocs who are signed up to us, it doesn't change the nature of what we're working on. And all it says is that we have maybe more public support for it or more support from a certain group. But that doesn't that shouldn't really affect the logic of what we're trying to change. And and that some of the things we do push for are maybe counter the, the interests of postdocs, right? So mm. in order to have a better system, you might have to adjust certain things about the postdoc about graduate school, which you know some people are against. Natural and logical because it's against their interests. But you know, so trying to balance those things is is tough. And so yeah, getting that engagement is really tough. It's tough for everyone who deals with postdocs in particular, I think. You know, one thing that we have really tried to push for that I think addresses this issue of, you know, all these experiences grads and postdocs have not being known by the, the higher up folks and this lack of participation is to try and get more early career folks included at very high levels in institutions, in universities, in scientific societies. Like, you know, we, we're pushing this this who's on board project, mm-hmm. right, of do you have a grad or a postdoc, ideally like both or a couple, right, of, of people who are in a voting position on your board of directors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's various stages of getting there. But this comes from, you know, my own experience of uh, myself and my colleague Jessica Polka have sort of become the go-to people for a, a you know, we, we sit on... We sit in this group rescuing biomedical research as the representatives of the young people, right? And <laughs> both on this study at the National Academies, again, as the postdoc representatives, mm-hmm. even if this was actually a postdoc, we were, you know, we, we were the, the young people. And, and, you know, with this study, it was a major thing that, oh my goodness, we have these two people who are actually young and know what the system is like. Um, <laughs> and for us, we were like, why in 2018 is this the first study, you know, in the history of these things to have actually included these perspectives in this way? Or have you made these pronouncements before without knowing what's actually going on? And especially when you're arguing, you know, you're arguing against people in a room who either don't want things to change or who insist that these aren't, you know, this never happens at my institution is the thing I hear a lot. You know, mm-hmm. somehow this data about, you know, across the country about how things are. But people are like, oh, that never happens here. You know, that, that doesn't happen with us. And, you know, everyone says that. So it, it can't be true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it, and it's, again, easy because then, th- because they don't have the data because they haven't bothered collecting it, you can't mm-hmm. disprove them. But you're also like, this can't make, you know, this is just illogical. So it's, it's, very, it's a very frustrating thing. And so we're like, we're, we're really pushing for more of these voices to be incorporated. And not only to get the perspective, but also to be nobody gets a job in academia purely from sitting in the lab all the time right yes. there's this weird narrative of oh my data should speak for itself no. you know you see these things like no. oh scientists on, on instagram or scientists who network like what's this nonsense and, you know you you can publish a paper but people get jobs by going to conferences and speaking to professors right and getting known yes. in the field 
right? You don't get a job just by staying at the bench the whole time. Nobody does. No job, including academia. So I think trying to push that also that these people being known by others in the field and being on the boards of societies and like being known and respected is part and parcel of developing as leaders in science, you know, in research. So being known to journal editors. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Being yes, being known and then saying, Hey, do you know this thing is happening? Yeah, I think is is a key part. And it's really NIH has sort of just discovered this also. They they have a couple of working groups that incorporated young people. Um, young people, by the way, is anyone under 40. That's, that's <laughs> the sort of set, right? Um, and they, they're like, oh, we have these, you know, we have the Next Generations Re Researchers Initiative. We have the High Risk, High Reward Working Group. We have the Sexual Harassment Working Group. And, oh, we have young people on, and it makes such a difference. And you're like, that's great that you have realized this. It's amazing that it took till 2018, 2019 for that to happen. <laughs> um, so, right, because people are just talking about problems that they don't really have a full appreciation of, or at least they're not getting the, the, the feedback about the experience of, of these things, right? And a lot of people have been going off their own experiences to justify why things are the way they are in academia. And you brought up earlier the level of student debt that people have, which is totally different to the current professorial generation, right? And that feeds into the money argument of you have to pay postdocs more because I have so much more debt than these people did who, yeah. you know, did a did a two year postdoc and then got a an R01 at the age of 32. Right. Um, <laughs> right? Versus somebody who is now 40 postdocing for five, six years, wants to have kids, also has a ton of college debt. Right. Like it's it's completely different. And that's, yeah. you know, they could both be. Both of those people could be identical in different times, you know, in their standard of how good a scientist they are. Mm -hmm. But you're selecting very differently now versus how yeah. you were. And, and it really, you know, who is doing the science is so important as well as, you know, how much science is being done, how much is being published. And it's, I think, quite shocking how little attention is being paid to who gets to be a scientist and who is doing the science and who is thinking about these problems and what kind of people do we have thinking about these problems, if they all come out of the same labs and the same institutions, they're all going to be thinking the same. And that's not how you solve a problem, right? You, right. People who think the same can't solve problems, as well as people with different perspectives and different backgrounds. So, so yes. I you know fundamentally, we really focused in on the lack of attention to people in this system. And, um, and you know, sometimes with a perspective of it's such a shame that senior scientists are eating the eating their young in this way yeah. you know and justifying it and don't feel don't seem to feel any shame about what's happening right so right i was i was about to say that i mean you, you uh talked about the difference in the careers that people had um and then them telling us that we are uh what, what's the word entitled right <laughs> we are right. being entitled but they are the people who created the system right so yeah. this is the the worst thing for me about these kind of conversations. <laughs> yeah, they they created it, they've maintained it, they've benefited from it, and you know, and and, and at our expense in many right. cases, the expense of many people. So a lot of time for some of the ones who feel bad about it and who are trying to fix it. But you know, there are a lot of people who think the system the system does work for a group of people, right? That's mm -hmm. the issue, and it does. It also still works because there is enough science being produced to say, well, we're still producing science, right? But I think nobody's really given serious thought to 
could we have cured some form of cancers 10 years earlier than we have now if we weren't in this system of having all these all this cheap labor being the priority right what if we were to really focus on what's the most efficient way of doing this is it by having lots of different trainees come in and then leave just as they become experts and then replacing them just with someone cheap mm. or is it by like focusing on how to solve the problem so i think that's, yeah. that's a lot of our thought is yeah yeah, I often feel like what people don't understand is how much uh, you lose productivity by being burned out. Yes. And you burn out quickly if you have bad living conditions and high pressure at work at the same time. You can, yeah. you can stand one of them at a time, but if there's pressure like this from several directions, it's, it really becomes hard to stay a productive scientist. Exactly. Especially because you yeah. need to and be the, creative. The, the, the institution, the, the institutions do not place such a central role of how do we ensure that our scientists are well supported so that they can do the best research that they can do and that they're not distracted by thinking about childcare or thinking about money or thinking about where they're living or thinking about their benefits, right? But instead, we are trying to figure out how to sort that for them and support them in doing their research. I think it's quite quite shocking. You know, I think the most striking case in the US with the way that health benefits work here is that a lot of people who will get a competitive fellowship or some sort of scholarship or some sort of award, if they're being paid directly or if that's coming through to them and not through the institution, the institution will say, well, you're no longer an employee, so you no longer get health benefits. Mm -hmm. And you're getting people who get sick now, right? And they I mean, I've, I've heard of people literally turning down a fellowship, a competitive award that they got as a, you know, an accomplished scholar mm -hmm. because they're like, well, it's this or my child care, right? Or, oh, you know, gosh. it's some, or I have some pre-existing condition that I won't be able to get covered, right? It's, and again, it, it's obscene to me that institutions yes. are not saying, we're going to pay your, your, the little cost for your health insurance because you got this great award, right? You're a great, you're, you're a good scientist and we want to reward that. Instead, places are like, oh, well, we, we can save some cost here, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it just is so, that just shows to me the, the, where the priorities are of an institution. If they, yeah. they want to claw back whatever little piece of money they can, it's really, it's really sad. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of conversations that I had with other postdocs. And see, I, I, I view academia as an international thing, so I feel like uh, all these issues should be known to everybody around the world. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. So because also a lot of countries say, oh, do a postdoc in the U.S., it's so great. Right. Uh, right. But if you talk to people in, in Europe, uh, most countries here have mandatory benefits. Uh, it's so mandatory that people don't think of it as a benefit. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, people from the UK, for example, were quite surprised to learn that you might end up without health care right. <laughs> in the US as a postdoc. And yeah. I think this needs to be known because, uh, because it's an international um, society, academia, uh, there needs to, to also be pressure from the outside that people, for example, in Europe know what are the conditions they are going into. They yeah. probably assume because it's fine in their country and most of the countries in Europe aren't as uh, uh, rich as the United States. So they will, will assume that it will be better there, but it right. might not be. Right. It's, it's absolutely true. And, you know, I think, I think, as you say, this is, again, my talking about the money is important because salary is one thing. But mm -hmm. 
you know, the salary in the US is people are like, oh, it's quite high now. But you're like, yes, compared to the UK, it is higher. But also in the UK, you get all of your, all of your there's a nationalized health service, right? And, right. you know, and vacation that, time, I guess. And there's vacation time, right? Right. It's more than two weeks. Um, yeah. If you have a baby, you don't have to. I mean, literally, people here will schedule a, a cesarean section at Christmas so they can like have the baby on the Christmas vacation and then come back to work as soon as possible. And it's, you know, you have to claim disability in order to get some time off for, for having a baby, right? It's, it's extremely, right, these considerations, I think a lot of people just focus on, I need to go where the science is good. Mm-hmm. And with someone who's a good scientist, and good meaning perhaps that they publish lots of papers in high impact factory journals, right? Of course. Um, right. <laughs> well, that's the and currency. We cannot blame people for that. Right. Absolutely. It's the currency. Um, this is, I got asked this question by somebody in a uh, nonprofit world recently of why do people work for really awful people in academia? I'm like, <laughs> well, because of the currency, if someone really, it doesn't matter how awful a person is, if they're bringing in grants, the institution won't deal with them. And if they're bringing in papers, right, and they're publishing well, you know, people will willingly work for them because, yes. again, you, you serve your time and they may not be a particularly nice person to work for and it might not be a great experience, but you're, you're balancing that cost of, well, maybe I'll get a job out of it because I'll get like a, a high-impact factor paper. And, uh, you know, people, people actively... There are people who, who have these kinds of labs who know this and who mm. clearly exploit this, right? Because yes. nobody will do anything about them because yeah. they, are, they are good scientists by the currency of the, the realm. So, yeah. um, but they are, they are arguably you know, not good mentors. Um, right. and, and then, frankly, some people don't mind working for people. I, we've been talking a lot about mentorship in our organization too. Mm-hmm. And um, there's some groups who you know, have tried to push for I rate my professor kind of thing for PhD supervisors and, and principal mm-hmm. investigators. And we've always sort of not been interested in that kind of a tactic because it implies that there is a best way to mentor someone to be a scientist, yes. right? And it has a judgment on it. Whereas, you know, there's a group in Boston, Seismic, their thing is to try and find mentoring fit. So mm-hmm. you basically report on what the experience is like. And some people like working for, you know, I. I had a horrible time at Harvard Medical School, but some people thrive in that environment and good for them. And, you know, mm-hmm. good for Harvard Med that, you know, that's fine. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't object to that existing. I object to everyone thinking that's the right way to do it or that everyone should be the same. But I think, you know, there, there's a good rationale for just be totally transparent about what it's like to work for these people. And mm-hmm. if people still want to work for them, ultimately, if they're doing it with all the information that they have, there's not much more you can say about it, right? Unless, of course, there being, you know, like something egregious is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if somebody is not a particularly warm and fuzzy mentor and people don't want to be working for a warm and fuzzy mentor, that's totally fine. Yeah. But yeah, it's the, as you say, the currency is is what drives a lot of it rather than, and people are going despite, not not because they, they like the person in particular, but they're going because, well, mm-hmm. this is the best currency chance i have i'll go to boston i'll go to this lab and i'll you know that's yeah that's what drives a lot of what drives a lot of boston as a research <laughs> hub to be honest yeah. yeah so the way i always see it is um if you are a mentor and first of all i think if you want to become a professor i think you should also want yes. to be a mentor and a lot of that's people true. don't want to be that yeah uh, but if you are 
and you're a good mentor, then you adjust your mentorship to mm -hmm. the person you're talking to. So, right. um, of course, there's still then people who don't work together well, but mm. at least there should be the will of the professor to be a good mentor and, and you know, adjust. Because, uh, I mean, there, there's a long, I mean, there's a continuum, continuum between people who are, you know, breathing down your neck, uh, <laughs> as they yeah. say, and people who are so, so uh, offhand that you don't see them ever right. Right. <laughs> and they don't ask you how you're doing and they don't ask you uh where the research is going and you know it's kind of so and there's a continuum and some mm -hmm. people like it more this way some people like right. it more that way um, exactly. but i think it should be the mentor's responsibility to at least try mm -hmm. uh, and if it doesn't work out then you know Yeah, and I maybe find somebody else who can mentor them. I often hear yeah. that you can mentor, you can find a mentor outside of your lab. That could be yes. So, although one issue I do have with that is that there are lots of really great mentors in academia, and the mm -hmm. issue then becomes that they then start mentoring everyone else's people, and so they become That's overwhelmed, true. right? And so, because everyone in the department is like, oh, well, just go to so and so because they're really nice and great. And because they're nice people, of course, they don't say no. And, you know, and so that, that I think, is a, is a frustration. A lot of this comes down to, we were talking about entitlement before. Mm -hmm. A lot of professors feel entitled to having graduate students and postdocs. Like that, that it is something yes. that they should be given because they have a faculty position. And I think, as you were saying, there should have to be some prerequisite to wanting to actually mentor, right? Mm -hmm. Having some desire. Um, because people are... You know, people have trainees. Not everyone who has trainees wants to be training people. They mm -hmm. have them because of the cheapest. And it's first of all, it's the way everyone does it. But they have them because they're they're the cheapest way of staffing your lab, right? Um, and I've you know I've I've expressed some opinions about this before, which I think I think especially when you start a new lab, it's super tough to reconcile. I need to staff my lab. I'm at oh, the yeah. bottom of the, the pile in faculty. Um, and so what do you do? You get a postdoc. But is that the right thing for the postdoc? Maybe, maybe it isn't. Again, the mentoring fit is important. But it's, um, you know, I think the, the idea that you immediately just start having cheap people in the lab because that's what you have to do is, is an unfortunate effect of the system. And, you know, honestly, I think there are people who shouldn't have, who shouldn't be mentoring, but who maybe could manage, you know, staff scientists well, right? Or staff mm -hmm. scientists and technicians. And, you know, staff scientists cost more than postdocs. In theory, they should cost more because a postdoc should be less productive than a staff scientist because they're supposed to be getting training. And so they're mm -hmm. not spending all their time at the bench. Although we know what the reality really is, is that they are spending a lot of their time at the bench. But, you know, in theory, you could imagine labs that are staffed rather than training places if we really were thinking seriously about how training looks and how staffing labs looks. But at the moment, people are like, well, I'm entitled to have this because, because that's what faculty are entitled to have. And, you know, I think, again, institutions do a disservice to their trainees when they're not intervening and saying this person really shouldn't have people. And they will at times do that. But it's often after multiple complaints and, you know, sometimes after something really bad has happened. Right. And, yeah, they're extremely resistant to Just sort of intervening and I, i'm i'm very keen to try and find ways to help aspiring faculty or junior faculty who really want to mentor well and to try and like select for those as people who have you know students and trainees right i'd like to see more of that rather than 
someone who gets lots of papers. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I have become extremely disillusioned with, you know, th this focus on citations and on papers, right? I mean, citations is the big thing. NIH has their relative citation ratio, you know, for your field, what is your relative stance in that? But, you know, citing papers is not necessarily a, it, it's, it might be a measure of how important your paper is, but it's not a measure of perhaps how valid it is. A paper can be <laughs> highly cited, but it might be completely invalid, right? Right. Um, they're citing it because of that, right? So it's, mm. so the, we're using all of these rather poor metrics, impact factor being another one, right? Mm -hmm. that sort of are some measure of productivity and doing things. Um, it's a horrible measure. It's not really a measure. It's just it's like not, a fantasy just, number. <laughs> it's an easy metric, right? Easy metric yeah. to use. And I actually, in dealing with grads and postdocs, I find this is one of the things you have to kind of like drill out of them is, you know, as a nonprofit, we're trying to affect change, right? Mm -hmm. And we do a lot of that. We're all academics generally who are involved in the group. And so a big, you know, big part of what we've done is like write papers, collect data and whatever. And then you're talking about the metrics of having affected change, right? Take the salaries, for example. People are like, well, we published a paper and we gave a talk and we wrote like a book chapter. I'm like, yeah, but that, that doesn't mean anything. That's just, that's just busy work, right? Mm -hmm. um, we did a thing, but did it have any effect, right? And I think this is sort of where my concern about academia and its focus on solving problems comes up because mm -hmm. You know, nobody's really looking at did we did we cure a disease, right? Like that's that's not the key thing. Or did this person, you know, did this person discover something like interesting and new and like you know that 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 kind of aspect? A lot of it is just oh, are they publishing in the right places and are they like getting grants? And and that yeah, the, the focus that there is on on those aspects of the system is becoming more and more about. Um, I mean, one of the biggest concerns from early career folks is I have to write a grant that is not risky because it won't get funded, but mm -hmm. also is not, you know, you have to find this fine window of just interesting enough to be fundable, but also extremely safe, right? right. It, it has to work. It has to be yeah. guaranteed to work, but it also has to be just new enough to be, and, and you know, so, that, so then people aren't writing, you know, people are sort of tamping down what they're attempting to do. And uh, the work might become much more incremental and much mm -hmm. more inefficient, right? And much right. slower. We might slow the progress of science. So that's, that's I think, a, a concern with all of these metrics and incentives here. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so we've been talking for a while now, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is great. Uh, you're great to listen to, too. Um, so uh, two questions I have, <laughs> and then maybe you have something you want to talk about that we didn't talk about yet. So my first question is more technical again, uh, going back to uh, salaries and stuff mm. uh, and overtime. So yes. do you have numbers on how much they sh would have to pay in overtime if we were paid overtime as postdocs? Right. Well, this is so this was, I think, where one of the most interesting arguments came up about the, the whole thing. So. Finding the number of hours that people actually work in academia is extremely tough because everyone has, oh, I work 80 hours a week, whatever. Um, people don't really keep track 
you know, this would be much easier with lawyers. Lawyers are very good at keeping track of their hours. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, but we don't do that in academia because it's sort of meant to be, you know, your passion and you do it all the time and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, one thing that did come up with the overtime ruling was that we were looking into was are, are the institutions going to raise the salaries or are they going to have postdocs essentially clock in and out? And there were some places who were exploring the idea of having people log their hours and do the overtime. Mm. And uh, interestingly, the, the lawyers who advise institutions, I watched like a couple of webinars that, that were set up by these groups, mm-hmm. and they basically said, don't even think about going down this road because what would happen is a PI will email you on Friday night and say, this paper has to be, you know, you have to revise this paper by like tomorrow afternoon, right? And, but, you know, I, I saw a lot of professors saying, oh, people can just write papers in their free time, right? <laughs> The billable hours will be time at the bench. And what the lawyers pointed out was that email saying, you need to work on this paper right now. If it doesn't correspond to a timesheet and that postdoc makes a complaint, the institution is going to get sued and is going Mm -hmm. to lose. And it's a very clear cut case. They're like, you have to have extremely good data collection about the hours people are actually working. You know, and we were making the case, this is well nigh impossible for a postdoc. I mean, you're going to have people... You're going to have special computers that you log into only when you're doing work. And you're going to, the amount of oversight was far more expensive, Um, you know, the potential legal costs, because institutions were also like, you can't trust the PIs of this because you know what they'll do, right? You know what people (laughs) will do. They'll they'll say, I need this by tomorrow, but don't put it on your timesheet. They'll probably write it explicitly, right? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. then, because I can't afford to pay you for it, but you need to do the work. Yeah. Uh, And with all of the, the incentives to be working more, it, and it, the the reporting mechanism in particular, you have to you could make a complaint to the Department of Labor, so it didn't go through your institution. It went through an external source, which is one thing that people were like, oh, nobody will complain to the institution because people don't complain in their institutions. But if you complain to someone else, it's very different. You can also do it up to three years after the incident. So I was like, there are no shortage of bitter postdocs who may leave the country and just want to burn a bridge, and that that would be the I think what would would have happened, mm-hmm. uh, and so you saw this very quick pivot to everyone just saying, "Let's just raise the salaries." <laughs> um, so I predict the hours would have cost them. You know, I think it would have cost just as much at the end of the day, um, given the the salary rates at the time, and then also on top of that would have been the cost of you'd have to hire people to be overseeing all of this. Mm-hmm. I think institutions quickly realised that the lower cost was just raising the salaries. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I have two two things. Uh... I just want to say about this. Um, so the first one is every time I tell people to really, for their own good, clock their time and look how mm-hmm. much are you really working? Um, because that's how I dealt with burnout. Mm. And it really helped me a lot to know how efficient am I? Um, how can I you know, be productive while still have time to recover? All these kind of things. So I started to really uh, clock my time People look like at me like I was crazy for doing uh-huh. that. And then, oh, it's the German guy, right? So <laughs> kind of this way. Um, but I really think that that is important uh, for yourself. So uh-huh. um, the second thing was about, oh, yeah, I had a Twitter conversation with somebody who said, so it was exactly this topic about raising the, the salary 
And he was like, oh, but I don't want to lose my postdocs. They're so valuable to me. They give me so great insights, etc., etc. And in the same conversation thread, he said, oh, but reading and going to seminars and all these things would not be clocked. So, you know, so he, he says he, he wants these brilliant people who are knowledgeable and know their things to give him insights. And then he tells you that although you're, you're supposed to be a trainee, uh, this is off your salary if you do right. seminars and if you do uh, reading time and all these kind of things. And yeah. this was so absurd. I mean, yeah, there's the, just real cognitive dissonance happening yeah, there. Yeah, the, the mental gymnastics they go through are sometimes just fascinating to watch. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so uh, second question. Um, what are the specific projects you're working on right now and what is the change that you're trying to achieve? I sort of touched on all of them briefly. The, the salary thing is sort of ongoing. You know, we've set that up and now we want to look longitudinally over time how salaries are, are changing um, and trying to expand that effort too. With the peer review aspect, we're looking to try and come up with, you know, model policies for journals so that they can, you know, a major barrier that seems to come up is this issue of you shouldn't share the paper with someone else because it's confidential without checking with the editor first. Mm -hmm. Of course, people don't check first, and then they say, well, I wasn't supposed to share this with you, so I now can't put your name here. So it's sort yeah. of two wrongs making a right. And so, you know, things like just tell people that they have to tell you who looked at it. There are some issues there. People want to identify if there's conflict of interest before or what have you. But I think some point of the process who actually looked at the paper, I think, is preferable to just pretending that you don't know. Just just turning a blind eye to it and, mm -hmm. and those those conflicts still existing regardless, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, we're hopeful that, you know, there are some journals who already are very explicit in enabling co-reviewing and who are pushing for, you know, this is great for training and what have you. So, so we're pushing so on that as well. Just, yeah. I mean, sorry for yet another question, but what would be a, an example of a conflict of interest that applies to the trainee but not the PI? So... Potentially, you know, uh, you ask a postdoc to review someone's paper and they did a PhD in that in one of the co-authors labs of the paper, right? Which we now don't know. I mean, hopefully the postdoc would say, oh, I shouldn't really review this paper. It was my, you know, PhD supervisor is on it or something. But, you know, the journals have no way at the moment of knowing whether that's that's being left to the individual labs to decide the ethics for themselves. Mm -hmm. And given that they're sort of already committing plagiarism, it's probably not a wise idea. Um <laughs> you know not to put too fine a point on it so you know if that comes up after the fact after the review it's a bit of a pain because you have to trash the review essentially but because the conflict is there but at least you know right mm -hmm. and i i think that's you know those sort of things and there are still ways around it but it makes it you know more ethical to you know you should just know who's contributing to the review i think that's the same way with authoring a paper you wouldn't just hide you wouldn't hide all of the co-authors of a paper uh, and just have one author on there, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you would, it's the same should really apply to to a review. If someone else has looked at it, the the journal should really know. So, yeah. yeah. And then another couple of projects that have sort of been fairly major for us have been, again, this project to try and put more early career folks on the boards of organizations. So I think that the push coming up will be to try and get scientific societies to have these people. Some of them already do. Like American Society for Microbiology, for example, has a couple of early career folks on their board uh, who have voting power. 
Genetic Society of America has a huge number of, of early career folks spread throughout your organization in various committees and various levels. And, you know, I think that I think it's really in the society's interest. They all have falling membership. They're all complaining about falling membership. And I think in large part, it's because there's not a perceived benefit to early career folks in being a member of the scientific society at the moment. And so yeah. having these people and it's expensive. involved, and it's expensive, right? And having these people involved may help change some of that. And, you know, we would hope that that would then percolate. There's some um, Welcome Trust has just set up a early career advisory board. eLife has its early career advisory group. And they also, I think, have early career folks on their, their board, too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of I think a lot of people are realizing this is smart because this helps us keep up to date with what's actually on the ground happening. And, you know, let's be honest, the grads and the postdocs are the people actually doing the research, actually doing the science. Right. Uh, it's yeah. not. You know, there are people writing grants and they're the ones who are having all these discussions. So yeah, that's we're hoping to, to push that a bit more as well. And then the other thing we've been working on, we have a conference in June in Chicago and with sort of satellites around the country. We're trying to come up with a set of guidelines around mentoring and essentially providing a very basic checklist of things that a department could be doing to ensure that they are prioritizing mentoring. So you know, how clear is it, for example, uh, what the processes are for reporting sexual harassment? Or, you know, what, do you have things set up in place? Do you have a person who deals with this aspect? You know, trying to think we're going to basically work with, a, with academics who are thinking about this a lot and people who are in the mentoring space. I'll come up with a checklist that could be useful for departments to really start thinking about mentoring, those who are interested. But also it could be a really interesting metric for early career researchers to use to say, you know, we thought about putting this, um, we've been talking about it a lot, like the Athena Swan program in the UK, where they have these badges of bronze, silver, gold for how well an institution is trying to um, help women in science to succeed. Yeah. Or um, in academia, now broadly, it's expanded uh, mm -hmm. and it's now in a number of countries. And, you know, it's useful. Basically, one of the funding agencies in the UK said, I'm the head of the funding agency said, I'm tired of not seeing any women on these proposals. So we're going to mandate that you have to have like a, a silver level of Athena Swan thing by this year in order to apply for funding from us. Mm. And, you know, we think in the same way, it's useful for people to self-select and say, oh, this place like is paying some attention to women and has met this kind of metric. Right. And so in the same way, early career folks could maybe look at this if we end up having a thing where there's different levels, different tiers or even just a sort of matrix that you can look at online of what institutions have what in what departments. Mm -hmm. You could say, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm deciding between two departments or graduate school, and this one seems to pay a lot more attention to mentoring, and that's something I care about. So we're hoping that that could be something that is useful for helping guide the decision of early career folks. And you know, I have mixed opinions about letting the free market determine everything, but honestly, it's, it's what institutions are most responsive to. Mm. In, in the work we've done on making, you know, making career outcomes for PhDs and postdocs more transparent, it's very clear that lots of incoming grad students are asking institutions, where do your people go? And how, how are you helping them get there? Mm -hmm. And it's caused a bit of a panic, first of all, because a lot of them are saying they don't want to go into academia because of how awful it looks. So that's yeah. actually helping drive some of this change because people are really concerned about that. That's a, that's a good new yeah. development that people are saying that that the news gets out that yeah. it's not so great in academia so yeah. that there is a, a like a force to push for change that's a good news I would, yeah yeah i would say that 
with the graduate students has happened in the last like I would say three four years so yeah. you find that basically that all of the younger grad students up to like year four are really they're all talking about this and all the ones applying are really aware of it so that's really driven institutional changes around career development because yeah, they're like good. we want to get good people in we have to do this it, yeah. it's no good to just say everyone should be in academia because people will go oh well you know this other place has really good outcomes, is very transparent, and is doing lots of training. So I'll just go right. there instead. Yeah, exactly. I, I want a job, right? I think a lot of academics are forgetting again, you know, the trajectory they had, and they're like, oh, you just have to work hard, and you'll get an academic position. And they didn't have the debt that people have, right? Like there's, yeah. and so you know, these people were coming through. I mean, I'm pretty unashamedly, you know, I did a PhD because I wanted to get a job using the PhD, right? I mean, I enjoy yeah. doing science. But, you know, enjoying doing science, you could do that for free, but, it, you know, it doesn't, uh, pe people would volunteer postdoc, right? People would do this work for free, but that doesn't make it right to do it. And, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, I need to have like a salary because science is not the only thing that drives me. Like also having a family and like these kinds of things are, are what's driving a lot of our generation, I think. So yeah. that, that has, has. That, just having planning security, yeah. right? I think that's yeah. that's what I missed the most was planning security. And you're on yeah. these uh, contracts that have to be uh, renewed every year, and basically you can throw be thrown out one day to the next. Uh, in the US, you yeah. might not even have health care, or you're, right. <laughs> you know, you can't afford a good car, but you need one because of the place you're at. You know these kind of things. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, the final thing, is there anything you wanted to say, uh, you wanted to get across, but we didn't talk about? I think, you know, the, the work, so the work that I'm doing is sort of coming to an end because the, the grant funding that we're on runs out at the end of June and I'm now looking, you know, I will be leaving the organization soon. And so, you know, we're doing a lot of soul searching about, the, the future of the organization and uh, what to do next and what, what it was that we did that was effective or wasn't effective. And I think the key thing that's come up to me is that, you know, I've spent a few years really sitting, trying to tell lots of people, gathering all this data, all of this evidence, and then trying to tell people, here's how the system looks. And, you know, you, you're a scientist, you respond to data, there's a problem here, what are we going to do to change it? And sadly, that doesn't really seem to work. A lot of people have compared my work to working with climate change deniers. <laughs> like, like you're like a climate scientist. Because, yeah, because yeah, people are like, I just don't believe this is true. I mean, I, I've literally heard academics say there's too much negative data about the system and we should stop. We should stop producing all of these negative studies. They're basically saying we should stop studying the problem because we're identifying that there is a problem. Oh, my rather God. Than We've identified a problem. What are we going to do to fix it? You know, and, and the motivation for this is, oh, we're driving people out of academia because they're like, the system is crappy and I don't want to be part of it. So somehow mm. the logic is we should be talking less about how crappy it is. And so you see this weird drive to, we should talk more about how you can pick up your kids whenever you like when you're an academic, which, first of all, try, try telling that to a postdoc, yeah. right? It's not even <laughs> exactly. It's not even true. Um, I'm doing so, brain surgery. I can't go and pick up my kid right now. <laughs> right. Like, I'm not allowed to leave the lab to go to a workshop. I'm certainly not allowed to like, you know, go pick up my kid, right? Yeah. Like, 
it's um so that i think is the it, it, it's making us think a lot about I feel like I've done an experiment in trying to convince people based on evidence that they need to change. And I think what I've been able to demonstrate by having this prolonged effort is they're not going to change because they don't want to. It's not because there isn't enough data. That's what everyone uses as an excuse. Uh, and you see it from sexual harassment in the US to you know postdoctoral issues, right? This weird circular argument of we don't have enough data about postdocs, so we can't make any changes but also we're not going to collect any data about postdocs so that we could make changes, right? It's, it's actually against their interest to be collecting postdoc numbers. Mm-hmm. That, and I think that the, the important thing that we've been pushing on and starting to do is actually gathering the data ourselves and taking that control away from them to say, well, we don't know how this looks, so we can't change it. And we can say, well, we looked it up and we've compared you all on this website and you, know, you, have, you have no power over it. This was actually yeah. used with the, there's an effort to get more institutions putting up where their PhDs go. And um, I'm quite proud of the fact that I and the organization were used as a threat to say, this group is gonna collect this data themselves if you don't start putting it up. And if you put it up, <laughs> you at least control the narrative. Whereas if they put it up, they can say whatever they want. Um, and also, you know, we've got these folks on board, so they will, you know, they will cheerlead you for putting out this data, which I was happy to do. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to support people doing good things. Yes, of um, course. It's, you know, it's not nice to be shouting at people and saying, you're doing this terribly or, you know, you're doing, this is wrong. But, you know, I, I also will do it if that's what it takes. <laughs> so, yeah, I, th- I think that's been an interesting discussion for the organization to have of whether it's worthwhile trying to make this case to senior scientists and to the establishment or whether it's worth just gathering this data and putting it out there and and you know embarrassing people right so embarrassing institutions and one hope i have i won't be you know i'll i won't really have a role in the organization going forward but you know again talking about when you get a fellowship and you you lose your benefits we talked about putting data about that up and i think i hope that the organization will gather that data and put it up and you know embarrass institutions who get rid of yeah you know, who, who mistreat their accomplished scientists by taking away their benefits. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just and to be on record, you try to not shame them, but there is no other way. <laughs> sometimes there's no other way, you know? Yeah. Because there's no excuse. That's the thing. I, I've realized I, I wasn't totally naive about this, but they had some pretense of an excuse when I started doing this work of there's just not enough information but there's no excuse because I've sat in the room and I've told them, I've given them all the evidence and they've said, no, we're still, we're still not going to change this. It's, um, I think it highlights how little care there is about the people in the system. You know, they like to pretend it's to do with data, but it's actually because I think they don't care, which is a really sad conclusion to have come to, but I think it's a useful one. So, so uh, you're leaving. What's, what's the next step? Um, yeah, it's a little scary because <laughs> for the first time in my life, I don't know what's coming next. Uh, so it's, this benefit of the academic track to an extent, it's like you always know what the the next thing is is or could be. Yeah, um, you just don't know and, if you, you get know, in. <laughs> yeah, you, you, get, you, know, you get to a point. I mean, I'm I'm in I'm in a very similar position, I think, to a lot of postdocs of not really sure what to do next. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I have I have various ideas. I think I might you know be trying to work on some of these projects going forward uh and basically trying to find a way of funding that and maybe doing a little sort of freelancing kind of work i've mm-hmm. I've learned that 
being a freelance academic is, you know, it's sort of a thing I recently discovered. So yeah. trying to can work. Um, yeah. And um, yep, I'm exploring a bunch of options to see. But uh, yes, it's um, it can be a little be a little scary, but I've I've had a lot of support from a lot of people who um, you know who are either passing my CV around or who are giving me advice. Um, I know I think the benefit, particularly on social media, of having a a network of people that you can mm-hmm. talk about these things with has been the the isolation part. I think is the the that would have been the worst part. But yeah. there's a lot of people who have gone through this kind of thing and who are going through it who are who form a good community. So it is at least nice to swap ideas and hear thoughts and, mm-hmm. and get you know and get support, um, which is really really nice. I'm very grateful for. So yeah. absolutely cool. Well, thank you very much. Sure. Bye. Thanks for listening. You just listened to the whole conversation that I had with Gary McDowell for episode 27, Precarious Postdocs, A Future for Research. I hope you liked the conversation. Please let me know on Twitter at Sci4Progress or via email info at scienceforprogress.eu. I thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. Bye-bye.